Uh, We're going to start our morning time by reading a very short psalm. It's one of my favorite psalms in the entire Psalter, Um, Psalm 121. Here's what you need to know as you're turning there. You don't have to throw this up there yet, uh, Darren. Here's what we're dealing with in Psalm 121. Psalm 121 is a part of a miniature book of psalms um, within the book of psalms, 15 psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. If you want to dive into the Psalms of Ascent, uh, get Eugene Peterson's Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's a chapter on each psalm. It's, it's profound. Um, here's what the Psalms of Ascent were. Jerusalem was on a mountain. Mount Zion is also the name of Jerusalem. So it was up a hill. You had to ascend up to Jerusalem. And multiple times a year, ancient uh, Hebrews, ancient Jews would traverse would would go on a pilgrimage to go to Jerusalem for annual feasts and festivals, the main one being Passover every year. When you were traveling from your village and your town uh, to Jerusalem, you were going on a journey, this pilgrimage, and this was your songbook. The Psalms of Ascent is the, are, were the songs you sang on your uh, trekking, on your pilgrimage to Jerusalem because you were ascending up the mountain. So the Psalms of Ascent were sung by the, by the Israelites on their journey to Jerusalem. That may not mean anything to you right now, but it will in a moment when we read this psalm because it puts the psalm in its context. When they were singing this psalm is an important uh, thing to note. Uh, Another thing to note uh, as a little background is that Judaism is an Eastern religion, which is not better or worse than a Western religion. Uh, Western religions tend to focus on the rational, the logical, the systematic. That's why we love a good three-point sermon, you know, organize it, all that. Uh, Ancient Jews know nothing of three-point sermons. (laughs) Like that's, they don't do, they don't experience and and approach uh, spirituality in that way quite the same way. Eastern religions focus typically more on the mystical, the experiential, kind of, kind of the, 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 the collision of the spiritual and the physical being together, um, the sacred, if you will. Uh, Again, and, and we need them both. I'm not making a judgment, but that plays itself out in Hebrew poetry, which is the Psalms. So there's this, a lot of metaphors being used. And so the metaphors being used are meant to be uh, taken like metaphors. Like the Lord is like this. Traveling with the Lord is kind of like this. And he treats me like this. There's this language of uh, the physical and the spiritual being parallel in a lot of their poetry. So that's what you need to know. Psalm of Ascent and kind of this mystical experiential, let's apply the physical to the spiritual background to Psalm 121. Got it? Hopefully. Here we go. Psalm 121, starting in verse one. We're going to read all eight verses and we'll, we'll revisit it. It says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. It's the word of the Lord. So the psalm starts off with an interesting question. It's not just rhetorical, this a center, this pilgrim uh, on his way up to Jerusalem and his group of travelers with him would have been actually asking this question, where does my help come from? From where does my help come? Like they're traveling to Jerusalem and this is not necessarily a safe journey. And they're actually asking this question in the song, 
We are traveling. And so the, 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 the dangers are real. The threats are real. We'll talk about that in a minute. But you need to know this version of help that they're asking for is not a, will you come help me pack for my trip? Just give me a few hours. It's a life-sustaining help that the singer is asking for in the song. As in, my entire life is at stake. And I'm out here in the wilderness traveling up to Jerusalem. And I don't feel like I'm going to be okay if I don't get help. And it doesn't come fast which it's easy to imagine a pilgrim on their way to Jerusalem singing this song, lifting their eyes to the hills, asking this question. The road to Jerusalem from all different angles, you had to go up to Jerusalem. The road to Jerusalem was fraught with dangers, thieves and bandits on the road, wild animals, scorching heat in the day, and even the moon at night. That's where the word like lunatic comes from. People thought like, hey, if I spend too much time with just the moon, I'm gonna go crazy, I'll go insane. And you will. All of these, all these elements on their journey created a fear and, and a reality that this journey that I'm going on to get from here to there is not safe. Jesus confirms this about this road to Jerusalem. He tells a very well-known parable in the book of Luke, the parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, a man was on, on the road to Jericho, the Jericho road between Jericho and Jerusalem. One of these roads where you had to go up to Jerusalem. And what is the reality that he tells about the Jericho road that everyone would have known about? That's a dangerous road. You're out in the wilderness, it's no man's land. There's no hotel to stop at. You are starting here and trying to get there. What are we gonna do on the road? In the story that Jesus tells, the man in the story gets attacked by robbers and thieves and left for dead. It was a dangerous road. That's the road and roads like it that these pilgrims in Psalm 121 would have been on singing about on their way up to Jerusalem. So it's a little easier to imagine if I show it to you. So let me show you some images real quick. Um, this first image is just literally like in the Judean wilderness, uh, a little valley where some green maybe uh, was from the, from the flood, the wadis as they're known. Um, but literally this is like, okay, I'm, I'm walking in this valley. I'm trying to find my way. I'm looking up to this big hill and I know there's danger everywhere. Even though I'm in this lush greenery, I know there's danger. So I'm lifting my eyes to the hills, like a hill like that, that they're looking at. Now go to the next one. This is an actual image of part of the road, part of the journey up to Jerusalem. See down there that path on the bottom left? That's like an actual piece of the road traveling to Jerusalem. And so how confident do you feel with a bunch of small kids and animals that you've got to bring for sacrifices? And I'm walking around that bend, around that edge to try to get up to Jerusalem. You feel like, man, isn't this a wonderful Bible sing-songy? Like, man, let's just skip our way up to Jerusalem. No, it's real. It's dangerous. You fall off, you die. Glad you came to church this morning. All right, next, next picture. This is like the trailhead on one of the roads leading to Jerusalem. You can pick some paths. I hope they all lead to Jerusalem. I hope they land me where I'm supposed to go. I don't have a map and I don't have GPS and I don't have a cell phone to call. I, don't, I can't do anything. I'm starting this journey up to Jerusalem. I've got to get up to the hills and I can't even see my destination. Go to the next one. I'm going to leave this one up there. This one to me is the most daunting. Another kind of trailhead on a uh, road to Jerusalem. How's that feel? Feel like, man, I can't wait to go on this journey. This feels like a vacation with my family. Like this feels, no. Or does it feel a little daunting, a little dangerous, a little intimidating? What story about the journey are you writing if this is how the road looks? What are you imagining about how this journey is going to go? I've got to get from here to Jerusalem, I'm in the Judean wilderness. This is what it looks like, this is it. And I've gotta go from here to there and I don't even know how I'm gonna get there. What would you be afraid of? How would you feel walking on this route? Now, remember, 
Eastern religions, they're connecting and, and giving you the parallel of the physical and the spiritual. So these pilgrims were actually literally asking this question. I'm looking to the hills wondering where is my help gonna come from because I actually don't know if I'm gonna make it to Jerusalem. Oh, and also that's what my spiritual journey feels like too. We're all headed towards the heavenly Jerusalem and the looking at the journey from here to there seems daunting. Seems like there's fears around the corner. There's thieves that could come. There's sicknesses that could come. There's pain that could come. There's unknowns that could come. I'm out here on the road actually singing this song about my actual journey, these pilgrims would have said, but I'm also asking it spiritually. And so how do you think, this, if we're transitioning to the spiritual now, the spiritual journey on the road home to the heavenly Jerusalem is it not fraught with hopelessness, doubt, exhaustion, fear, and anxiety? If that's what it's like to be a spiritual pilgrim and that's what the road is like, they're singing it literally, but they're asking it spiritually. And so there's this question beneath all of our fears that we're all asking. Most of us in this room are asking a version of this question when we look at where we are on the road and where we hope to be on the road, we're asking this question. Am I and the ones I love going to be okay? Is everything going to work out? And you can fill in the details of that however you want, however your story has caused you to write that story. Am I and the ones I love going to be okay? And is everything going to work out? Do you know that the question at the bottom of you is typically a question full of anxiety? We ask anxious questions in our future fears all the time. And all kinds of things can bring us to ask that question. Financial realities. Don't know how I'm gonna pay bills this month. I can't keep spending more than I'm making, but I'm just spending to try to live. How am I gonna live? Am I gonna be okay in six months? Anxious question. Medical questions. I've been diagnosed with something. My friends have been diagnosed with something. My friends have, have a road ahead. I have a fear that my little ones won't be okay. How can I control their bodies and make sure everything's okay? Sure, they're healthy now. What about later? Anxiety question. Relational questions, aspirational questions, vocational questions, romantic questions, all of them. Every question you ask about the future is full of anxiety. Is this going to work out? How can I be sure of this? German philosopher Martin Heidegger made up a word that encapsulates what life on the road to the heavenly Jerusalem is like. Now, he wasn't a Christian, but he's just talking about the human experience what is the human experience like in this world? He made up a word called Gewerfenheit. You know, I'm kidding. Gewerfenheit, which literally means a throneness. Like I've been thrown out of an airplane and I don't have a parachute. And so like the, like the, the anxiety of my stomach's falling and I have no guarantees on like how I'm gonna land this thing. Am I gonna land on this thing? And I've just been thrown with no direction, no purpose, no confidence, no guarantees, no certainty. And so when I look into the future and I peer my eyes over the horizon of what's to come, of course it's full of anxiety because it feels like I've been thrown and I have nothing to catch me. Is anything gonna be there when I need it to be there? Some of you know what it's like to ask that question every day. Am I and the ones I love going to be okay? And what am I gonna do when? And how am I gonna be if? With all the breakups and loneliness and death and cancer and loss and divorce and addictions and injustice and violence and war and hatred and disease, that's 
what it feels like to be on that road spiritually. There's things waiting around the corner for me and I don't know when they're coming. And so I lift my eyes to the hills and I ask a question, am I going to be okay? Where's my help gonna come from? And then we do this. We end up writing a narrative about the Lord in our fear and our anxiety. Suffering and the future of suffering in our life always makes us anxious. And in our anxiety, we write two storylines about the Lord towards us. He's either A, punishing me, or B, he's forgotten about me. Or maybe both. C, all the above. He's either A, punishing me, or B, he's forgotten about me. And my suffering is proof of that. And my future fear, if those fears came true, he would definitely be punishing me or he's definitely forgotten about me. That's what the psalmist is asking. I'm looking up to the hills. Where's my help gonna come from? Translation, you don't seem to be helping, Lord. Where are you? That's what suffering and the fear of suffering does to us. And then that's the first verse and a half, this anxiety ridden first verse. And then there's this shift in the Psalm. And here's what the shift is. It's a shift in focus. In the first verse and a half, the dominant pronoun is in the first person. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? There's a lot I'm afraid of on this road to Jerusalem. And all I can think about is all the things that I'm afraid of on this journey to Jerusalem, literally and spiritually. And then his focus shifts because he doesn't stop lifting his eyes. I lift my eyes to the hills. There's robbers and thieves in these hills. There's wild animals in these hills. I don't know where my help's gonna come from. And then he answers it. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. In other words, my help comes from the one who made the hills and not just the hills, the heaven, the heavens and the earth. That's where my help comes from. And so here's the shift. Commentators, every commentator notes this shift. It happens in a lot of Psalms, happens exuberantly in this one there's a grammatical shift in the pronoun usage. He starts in the first person, I lift my eyes to the hills, where's my help gonna come from? And then for the rest of the Psalm, he shifts to the third person pronoun. He actually doesn't use the first person one more time. He, he, the Lord, he. So the beauty of this Psalm is that it starts with all this anxiety and this realization, there is actually a lot to be afraid of on the road to Jerusalem and on your road to the heavenly Jerusalem. There is a lot to be afraid of, things that can and will hurt you and kill you. And all the anxiety that comes with that, where is my help gonna come from? But the psalmist doesn't stay there. He doesn't keep listing all the justified reasons why he should stay anxious. He keeps his focus elsewhere. And he starts recounting to himself and therefore all the journeyers up to Jerusalem, they shift their focus actually and grammatically. The singers of this Psalm on the road to Jerusalem recount for themselves who the Lord is and what he's like. Listen to what the Psalm says, verses three through eight in these six verses. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. 
The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. That's how he lands. Now, does the psalmist sound anxious at the end? Does he sound restless? Does he sound worried? Does he sound afraid? Because what he's paying attention to has shifted. And what he's paying attention to, because he shifts what he's paying attention to, he's not focusing on all the things he could and should be afraid and anxious about. He's focusing on the Lord and guess what it does to him? It actually changes him. He's not anxious anymore. None of his circumstances have changed, but he has changed. In Hebrew writing, ancient Hebrew writing, especially in poetry, but um, they didn't have font control, like bold and italics and underlines. We've talked about this some in here before, but a, a, a really common way that a Hebrew writer would draw attention to something, would emphasize something, is to repeat something. The Hebrew technique of repetition. It's an ancient literary practice. And if something's repeated, that's, your, that's their way of like putting bold around something, like pay attention to this. So I want you to listen to this again. We're gonna read these last six verses again. Close your eyes if you want to. If not, you can follow along and cheat. But I want you to like listen for this, like them singing this out loud and hear, listen for the repetition. What do you hear repeated that the author's trying to emphasize? Verse three, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your, on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now for a Hebrew writer to emphasize something, they literally only had to repeat something like one or two times in a paragraph. This psalmist goes over the top with his repetition. Six times in six verses, we are told that the Lord keeps us. He keeps you, 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 he keeps you. To keep something, that Hebrew word to keep has several profound meanings. It's not like a toddler keeping his toy because they don't want their sibling to play with it. I mean, it's, I guess it's kind of like that in a beautiful way, but it means literally to treasure something up, to cling to it, to preserve it and protect it. I'm clinging to this and keeping it. It's mine because it's a treasure to me. The way a parent keeps a child, the way a lover keeps a spouse, the way a warrior keeps his sword and his shield. I'm holding on to this because I have to have this. I love it and I need it and I will hold it as close to myself as I can. In other words, for the Lord to keep you, he has to be close to you. He can't keep you, preserve you, treasure you, literally cling to you and be distant from you. In order to keep something six times in six verses, he has to be near to you. That's actually what verse five is trying to show you. Throw verse five back up there, Darren. Verse five says, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. Shade is another word for shadow. Do you know how close a shadow is? Saying the Lord is actually closer than your shadow. He's more of a shadow to you than what your right hand creates in the beating sun. The Lord is your shadow. He's that close to you. So when you face the thing that brings you anxiety, when you're in the thing that brings you anxiety, the Lord is keeping you. When you sleep, 
the Lord is keeping you because he doesn't sleep. When you're writing a narrative of how the next five months or the next five years are gonna go and you're writing that narrative out of your memory of how the last five months have been or five years have been and all you can do is look into the future and think this is how these next five weeks or five months or five years are gonna go and I know that because of my history, my experience. Even when you're doing that, the Lord is keeping you. What the psalmist wants you to realize is that singer of this psalm, you can't name a scenario in your life that would stop the Lord from keeping you. Look at verse six. He says, the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Okay, this is another like Hebrew technique, uh, especially in poetry. When they list like metaphors, like this Eastern metaphor, this like experiential religion, when they list it and they list things that are polar opposites, it's actually a way for them to communicate the total of everything in between. So when he says in verse six, the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night, how many hours of a day did he just cover? Every hour of every day, the Lord will keep you and everything in between. And then get this. It's not just that there isn't any living reality that, he, that would stop the Lord from keeping you. He closes the psalm by settling even your beyond future fears. Verse eight, he will keep you from this time forth and forevermore. Forevermore is the Hebrew word for eternity. Meaning this, even in death. <laughs> Thought he was trying to make a point. Thanks, Chris. Um, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I haven't made the point yet. Hold on, wait, and then you can hit it. Here's what verse eight is just telling you. Even in death, the Lord keeps you. Even if the thing that you're most afraid of happens, he still keeps you. Now, it's not that when we shift our focus on the Lord and like the pronouns shift from I, my to he and the Lord. It's not that when we shift our focus, all of our problems go away. I wish that were true. The Psalm actually goes to a deeper place than that. Like, do you know what you need when you're anxious? You don't need new circumstances. That's what we all believe. I need a new marriage. I need a new job. I need a new, I need not this pain to be here. I need, I need a, a, a guarantee. I need a new circumstance that's not my current circumstance so that if I get to a new circumstance, I wouldn't have any anxiety anymore. That's what I think I need. But maybe you haven't lived long enough or sinned big enough or suffered enough to know that even in your new circumstances, if you are still anxious, you will find something to be anxious about in the new circumstances. You don't need new circumstances. You need something that gets to a place that your circumstances can't touch. That's the message of Psalm 121. You need to know in your anxiety that even when you're anxious and afraid, you are being kept. You need to know that there is one beside you closer than a shadow. You need to know that nothing in all the created order could remove your being kept by him. The comfort of the psalm is going to a place that goes beneath the circumstances. The Lord will keep you. There is no pain, there is no sadness, there is no danger, there is no evil. Nothing will be able to stop the Lord from keeping you till the end and past the end. The rhetorical question of this chapter, of this psalm is like the shadow line. How can you lose a shadow? How can you lose something that's attached to you. 
He keeps you, he keeps you, he keeps you, he keeps you, he keeps you. And then you need to know that the Bible doesn't end in Psalm 121. It's not the end of the book. Because the story of the pilgrims, the story of God's people keeps going. And it's not just that these pilgrims were finding their hope in being kept by the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The story that the gospel tells, the story of the Bible goes deeper. It's a better story. It tells the story of the God who didn't wait for people to get to the heavenly Jerusalem. It tells the story of a God who came and descended to get us. That's the story of Jesus. The God who left the heavenly Jerusalem to come to us. He didn't wait for you to get there. This is the story of the 99, leaving the 99 for the one. This is the story of looking for lost treasure. This is the story of like the old hymn says, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride with his own blood. He bought her and for her life he died. Do you know to the lengths he's gone to find you? This, this is what Romans 8 is saying. How will he who did not spare his own son, will he not also give us all things? Like if he's already spent so much to get you, he intends to keep you. So all the anxiety and the spiraling out of control that I do with my questions, they all get quieted here. You are not being punished and you have not been forgotten. You are not being thrown. You are being kept. Let's pray. Jesus, guide us now as we come in worship um, to sing this psalm, to sing the realities of this psalm. There are fears within and fears without. And Lord, I pray that you shift our focus. We all have plenty of justifiable reasons to be anxious, but would you shift our focus onto you, our great keeper? We pray in the name of Jesus, the one who came to get and keep us. We ask all this in his name. Amen.